I want to invite you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and let's go to James chapter 2. As you're turning there, let me just start off by saying that one of the greatest tragedies in the church today, and that it is so often filled with those that profess Christ and yet live nothing for Him. What about those that profess to be believers been baptized, maybe even faithful members or attenders of the church, and yet they have no true desire to live their lives in full submission to God. They have no true, genuine desire uh, to study the Word of God, to, to live it out. They have no desire to give all that they are and all that they have in order to make sure that the gospel is proclaimed to all people in all places, to give all that they have and all that they are in order to to meet the needs of other people. I mean, Scripture commands us in Galatians chapter 6, verse number 10, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those of the household of faith. I think there are two questions that are ultimately necessary for every child of God to wrestle through. Let me give those questions to you real quickly. First of all, can someone have genuine faith and yet not be involved in doing good works? Or let me ask it this way. Can can faith without the evidence of good works in a person's life, can faith save an individual? The answer to those questions are no. Scripture is going to tell us this morning, a person who really believes does something with that belief. They, they, they act upon belief. And yet millions of people will profess faith in Christ and live nothing for him or for his glory in fact the only thing that makes their life any different than those that don't believe in christ is that occasionally on a sunday morning they might wake up and find themselves going to church one day i think it's to this point where james asked the piercing question that we begin in verse number 14 james says what good is it my brothers if someone says he has faith but does not have works Can that faith save him? In the Greek language and writing style, a negative answer is anticipated to the question. So when he says, can that faith save him? The answer is a resounding no. James is not disputing the importance of faith. Rather, he is opposing the notion that saving faith can be merely an intellectual exercise void of any commitment to active obedience. Merely claiming to have faith is not enough. Genuine faith is evidenced by a life of obedience unto God. So let me give you two quick points about this verse. First of all, it's the man says that he has faith. But it's only what he says. The man does nothing to show that he really believes in Christ. His faith is only a faith of speech. It's not a faith of behavior, nor is it a faith of lifestyle. His faith is a faith of profession, but not a faith of possession. Which brings us to the second observation. His faith is ultimately 
a dead faith. I want you to notice that it's going to be referred to as a dead faith throughout the passage of Scripture we'll look at this morning. In fact, look down at verse number 17. Verse number 17 says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Then go down to verse number 20. It says there, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? That word useless, it depends on which translation that you have. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, uh, that, and that renders the word useless. But depending on what you're reading from, if you have the new Revised Standard Version, yours says uh, that faith apart from works is barren. Uh, the Williams translation says that faith apart from works is worthless. And if you have the King James Version or the New King James Version, yours says that faith apart from works is dead. So, so I mean, there's the picture. Faith apart from works is dead. It's worthless. It's barren. It's useless. And then if you'll go down to verse number 26 one more time, he says, For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So it's not enough to claim that we have faith and yet not demonstrate it by how we live. We must believe in Christ. Genuinely, authentically believe that He is the Savior and the Lord of our life. And if we really believe that, then we will do whatever He tells us to do. We will go wherever He sends us to go. We will live a Christ-centered life rather than a self-centered one. And so the rhetorical question in verse number 14 is followed by a hypothetical yet realistic illustration beginning in verse number 15. I see some of y'all are fanning yourselves because you are hot today. And that really didn't sound the right way coming out of my mouth. <laughs> that you're warm in your seat today. It is warm up here as well. If you can check that for me, I'd appreciate it. I try to be good and like wear a tie today. Someone said that's probably not going to last. You're exactly right. It's not going to last at all. It is warm. Okay, so okay, we get the rhetorical question in verse number 14. It's followed by the hypothetical yet realistic illustration. Let's begin in verse number 15. It says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? Now James calls his readers to imagine themselves being confronted by a brother and sister in Christ that has a desperate need. It says that, that they are lacking, that they're poorly clothed. Or some translations even render it as they're being naked. They're being naked and in desperate need of food because they're lacking in, in, in their daily food. And such a situation demands a response. And, and in our text, someone has a response. When the church is looking upon the scene of a desperate individual, someone finally speaks up and says, Go in peace. Be warm and well fed. Eh. I mean, those are nice words. I mean, they, they, they express the desire to see that the needs of the individual are met, 
but were the words enough to give food for the individual or give clothing that they needed? No, the words were empty. The words needed to be met with action. In this response, did anything happen or did anything change? No, when the individual was left, the individual was left and they were still naked in need of desperate food. Now Charles Schultz, I believe, beautifully understood the implications of the reality that words mean nothing if they're not followed by action. And Canaan, buddy, this one's for you, so check it out. A little Snoopy on the screen. Notice what he says. Snoopy looks kind of cold, doesn't he? I'll say he does. Maybe we'd better go over and comfort him. That's what we have here. They're confronted with an individual with need. Snoopy has a desperate need. And what's their response? Yeah, be of good cheer, Snoopy. Yeah, be of good cheer. And then they left. Did anything happen? Was anything changed? Were the words met with any type of action? No. For the one in need of the basics of life, sentimental wishes do little good. If nothing is done to fill the pressing need for warm clothes and satisfying food, what good is the use of words? In fact, at least Charles, I mean, sorry, John Calvin once wrote these words, he said that it is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never be alone. I mean, any declaration of faith that does not result in a changed life, in a life in the pursuit of good works, that declaration of faith is a false declaration of faith. I want you to think about the parable of the Good Samaritan that's found in Luke chapter 10. If you're not familiar with the story, it's basically a man is beaten up by a group of individuals and left stranded on the side of a pathway. And he's not just like hurt, the guy is on the verge of dying. He's left there to die. And there are groups, of, there are three individuals that pass his way. The first two do nothing to help and render aid to him. The third one does. The first two was the priest and a Levite. So the priest and a Levite would have been someone that worked for the temple. And so both of them had religious training, yet neither of them stopped to help the man that was dying on the side of a road. There's no doubt in my mind that either one of the priests or the Levite could defend their faith. Their problem was neither one of them actually demonstrated their faith that day. And so words are worthless if they don't lead us to action. And likewise, faith is useless if it is nothing more than just words in our life. Which brings us to the next verse. Verse number 17 says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James's words have sparked tremendous debates over the centuries. Is James denying salvation by faith? Is he suggesting that salvation can be secured by the production of good works? Is James out of step with the Apostle Paul who so loudly 
and clearly declares in Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. Is James at odds with this? And the answer to that is no. James is not declaring, nor is he trying to teach that salvation can be achieved through works and that faith is not necessary to salvation. He's not in disagreement with the Apostle Paul. Paul was teaching about faith and works and how it focuses, he's focusing on before conversion. James is focusing on post-conversion. And so good works cannot produce salvation, but make no mistake, my friends, salvation most certainly produces good works in us. So a work-less faith is nothing more than a worthless faith. It is dead. It is empty. It is barren. It is lifeless. It's ultimately useless. And so what James is really addressing here is a very common problem. And that's the problem of thinking that we have true faith when in reality, we don't. James is dealing with the matter of being deceived about one's salvation. Notice again back to verse number 14. It says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The emphasis is on the person that says that they have faith, but the absence of work in that person's life proves that their declaration of faith was only a matter of words. Make no mistake, James is actually saying the same things as other gospel writers that we see. In fact, the Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 3, verse number 18, he says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Then it says in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 16, Jesus declared, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so, here's what James has done. He, after he's drawn his conclusion, he begins to, to handle some potential objections. He knows his readers. He knows that some of them are going to argue against his point. And so he begins to address the potential objection. Look at verse number 18. He says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? I think this might be the most misunderstood portion of uh, James's letter. An imaginary respondent is now on the scene, and that imaginary respondent is identified as someone. He says, but someone will say. So this someone character has now been introduced. And James is going to give us an example of two men of arrogance. He's painting the picture of two individuals. But only one person speaks. And what that one person said is contained in one simple sentence. The, the someone, the imaginary person, says to another imaginary individual, 
you have faith, I have works. And so the imaginary man, the one that's being addressed, or the one that's being talked to by this someone, well, that is the person that has faith. They believe that they are saved by faith, that God accepts them, that they believe in Jesus Christ, even if, here's the kicker, even if the faith fails to demonstrate itself by what they do. So they're just saying that they have faith, but there's no evidence of it in their life. And so here's the problem with that. And here's why it's so wrong, because of what Scripture tells us. Matthew chapter 7, verse number 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So the ones that will enter, the ones that are doing, that are living, that their belief has affected who they are, so much so that they changed their behavior and now pursue a life of obedience to Christ. And Titus chapter 1, verse number 16 says that they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So this imaginary individual had a faith that was all alone, absence of works. And then the imaginary speaker, well, all they had was their good works. This is the person that believes that God will accept them simply because they're a good person. Their life is filled with doing good and charitable things. And that surely in the end, if a person just tries to do enough good things, that God will ultimately receive them and not reject them, no matter who they are or no matter what they believe. And yet the problem with that thinking is that Scripture tells us that that's not true. Back to Matthew chapter 7. It says that on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's not about the good works that you do, because the good works aren't enough. It's still empty if it's not matched with faith and trust in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And James, in his writing, pulls no punches. It's not a matter of, is it faith or works? Or is it faith versus works? To say and to profess faith alone, absence of a life of obedience, is not enough. Uh, To pursue good works and good things without faith and trust in Jesus Christ, well, that's... Not enough either. And so James handles both of these men of arrogance with one clear statement. He says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Which means a person who truly believes in Jesus Christ works for the Lord. They work for the Lord for His glory so that His name might be made known among the people. But a person who only professes Christ and not possess a relationship with Him, well, that individual, they'll they'll live for themselves. They'll do what they want, when they want to. 
Their lives are lived with little, if any, separation from the world. They live their lives with little desire for righteousness and holiness to prevail. They live their lives with with little to no absolute desire or willingness to meet the needs of other people. And that person knows nothing about the life of Jesus Christ. They know nothing about the sacrificial giving and living that Jesus Christ demonstrated for us and also demands from us as well. Stay with me here. Hear me clearly, please. Believing in God is not enough to attain salvation. It's not enough. There's a belief that leads to salvation, and then there's a belief that does not lead to salvation. There is a dead belief and a living belief. Do you know which one you have today? Is your belief dead or is it alive? And, And thankfully, James is going to explain and illustrate this for us. Look at verse number 19. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even demons believe and shudder. It might surprise you that demons believe in God. It might surprise you that demons have faith in God, albeit a dead faith, but they believe. They know. Well, what is it that, that demons believe about God? Well, I think first and foremost, they believe in the existence of God. Demons are not atheistic, nor are they agnostic. They believe in the existence of God. They know that God is genuine, that God is real. Not only that, believe, demons actually believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. Listen as I read to you Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. And when he, talking about Jesus, when Jesus came to the other side, two demon-possessed men met him. And coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way, and behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So they understood the deity of Christ. They referred to Him as the Son of God. In fact, whenever they met Christ when He was on earth, they constantly bore witness to His Sonship, to His deity. Mark chapter 3, verse number 11 says, And whenever the unclean spirits saw Him, they fell down before Him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And that's good! But it's not enough. All of this is not enough to to bring about salvation. It's not enough to believe and to tremble. A person can be enlightened in the mind. They can be stirred in the heart. They can be emotional in their response and yet still fall short of turning their lives into full submission unto God. Which means they're lost, separated, dead. Genuine saving faith involves something more. Genuine saving faith involves something that can be seen and recognized. What is that something? It's the evidence of a changed life. Being a Christian involves trusting in Christ and then living for Christ. It is receiving the life 
so that you can reveal the life. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Bobby said this one earlier. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So is it good to believe in one God? Well, yes. I mean, that's good. Uh, James even says, you do well to believe that. But is belief in the existence of one God enough to secure salvation for an individual? The answer is no. Even demons believe the truth about God. And even beyond that, they tremble in fear in the presence of God. But do they have a saving belief? Absolutely not. Neither is our belief in God if it consists of nothing more than nodding in agreement about some presuppositions or some statements about the character and nature of God. In fact, James gives us a couple of examples about how faith and works are supposed to work together. That our works are supposed to give evidence to the fact that our faith is true and genuine. Look at those examples. He starts with Abraham, verse number 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And if we're not careful, this is a passage that can cause problems for a lot of us. It seems as though James is saying that Abraham is justified by his works. But we know that's not the case because we know that's not what Scripture teaches us. In fact, Paul gives great clarity to this. Paul writes in Romans chapter 4, verses 1-3, through 3, and he says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul clearly says that Abraham was not justified by works. But again, Paul is addressing the priority of faith, whereas James is addressing the proof or the evidence of faith. Paul declared that Abraham had faith and was therefore justified or declared righteous by God. And then James is now saying that Abraham proved that he was justified. He proved that he was justified or declared righteous by God by his works, by his act of obedience to what God called him to do. How do we know this is really what he's meaning and how do we know that they're not truly opposed to each other? I think we just look closely at what the Scripture says. Two points. Look real quick. Verse number 22. He says that you see that faith was active along with His works. And faith was completed by His works. That verb translated was completed means to carry to the end. 
which is saying that faith finds its fulfillment in action. And if there's no action, then there's no living faith. And so uh, Abraham, uh, Paul says that Abraham was justified by faith. And then James says that yes, he's justified by faith as given evidence by what he did and how he was obedient to the Father. And then secondly, I want you to notice how Abraham's faith fulfilled Scripture. What Scripture did it fulfill? The reference goes back to Genesis chapter 15, verse number 6, where it says, and he believed the Lord, and he counted, counted it as righteousness. Now, those words that are declared in Genesis chapter 15, verse number 6, were declared some 30 years before Abraham ever offered up Isaac as a sacrifice. 30 years. God pronounced that Abraham was justified 30 years prior to the event that James is referring to. So James is declaring that when Abraham offered up his son, that he was actually proving his faith. And the reason why Abraham offered up Isaac was because he did believe God. He believed, therefore he did what God asked him to do. Not only that, check it out. Not only did Abraham do what God asked him to do, Abraham did what God asked him to do even though it made absolutely no sense what God was asking him to do in the first place. He didn't wait around till he fully understood. He didn't wait around for greater clarification. He didn't wait around for God to show me an, another way or, or give greater insight. God commanded Abraham believed, therefore he did what God asked him to do, even though it made absolutely no sense to him. And so it, it, it's true of all of us. If we truly believe in Christ, then we will do what he tells us to do. If we truly believe in him, then our lives will give evidence of that belief by who we are, how we act, what we say, and what we do. Now, if a person does not truly believe in Christ, then they're not going to do what Christ tells them to do. They'll be in pursuit of their own thing in their own way. And then, James very beautifully gives us a second example. Look at verse 25. He says, In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Here's the thing. James had already made it crystal clear in his first illustration that a genuine and living faith proves itself by a life of obedience to God. So, so why is it even necessary for him to give us another example? I think it's necessary because James truly understood his readers and he truly understood without even fully realizing it how we might be prone to react to it today. I mean, it's one thing to hear him say, okay, prove your faith by a life of obedience and then to turn around and to use as an illustration Father Abraham I mean, come on, really? Of all people, you're going to choose Abraham and you're going to tell us that that's how we're supposed to be? That's what we're supposed to look like? You gave the perfect example of Abraham thinking that we can live up to that? Come on, that's too high. There's, that's not realistic. 
I think he's anticipating that as a potential reaction from people. So therefore, James reaches to the other end of the spectrum. He gives us Abraham and Rahab. He gives us the patriarch and the prostitute. And he, and he says, like, look, look how it all works together. And he makes the same exact point that true faith reveals itself in a life of obedience and the pursuit of doing good works for the honor and the glory of God. Because Rahab was a prostitute, she was considered the lowest in society. Which reveals to us that even the lowest one among us, however you would categorize that, it means that every single person who believes in God must pursue a life of obedience and do good works. We must clean up our lives and, and, and follow God. Rahab did. And when, when the spies from Israel were being hunted down by the soldiers in Jericho, she hid them. A question I didn't come to mind, like why would she betray her own country to protect the spies from Israel. Why? Because she believed God. She believed in God and she believed in His promises. Therefore, she acted on that belief. She put her faith to work. And the conclusion in verse number 26 is quite descriptive. He says, For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works, is dead. So the conclusion is clear. Faith and works are essential to each other, just as essential as the body and the Spirit are essential to each other. Without the Spirit, the body is dead. Without works manifested in the life of a believer, faith is dead. One more quote for you this morning. This one comes from Martin Luther he puts it this way, oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. And so it is impossible for it not to do good works incessantly. It does not ask whether there are good works to do, but before the question rises, it has already done them and is always at the doing of them. He who does not these works is a faithless man. So, as we close, let me say this. If you profess to have Jesus Christ in your life and there are no marks of good works, there's no evidence of a life of obedience to Him, if you think that you and God have this special arrangement where you can just do your thing in your way and in the end you're still good with Him, I'm telling you, if there are no good works in your life, if there is no genuine fruit of genuine faith, if the only thing that you have to lean on for your hope of heaven is some card that you filled out, an aisle that you walked, a prayer that you prayed, or some religious ritual that you participated in, if that's all that you have to base your hope on, I'm telling you, it's not enough. It's not enough. Scripture is clear. 
if you claim to have faith and there's no evidence of that faith in your life, then your claim is false. It's not true. You're a dead corpse with a dead faith. And that, my friends, is not going to get you into the presence of God for all eternity. We must be alive in the Spirit in possession of a living faith. The only way that we can have a living faith is to completely, wholly put our trust, our lives, into Jesus' care. It's not enough just to intellectually agree in His existence and what the Word of God says. True saving faith is taking belief and acting on it. Demonstrated by who we are and what we do. And so I just want to just raise a caution today. If you claim to be a Christ follower and there's no real fruit of genuine faith given evidence in your life, you better check that claim. You better make sure. Because God's people, possessors of real faith, will be busy about doing good for the glory of God. Because we recognize that it's not about us. It's about something greater. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about the glory of God being made known and being proclaimed to all people in all places. So the question today is, are you in possession of a dead faith or a living faith? And if you have a dead faith today, would you just turn it over to our Savior and say, here's my life. I give you complete control, the rule and reign over my life. I will do what you tell me to do. I will go where you send me. I will stop doing what I need to stop doing that's hindering my walk with you. I'll give you a life of full, complete obedience. Oh, that this church would be filled with people that would make that declaration true. That we would uh, join in with the psalmist of Psalm 139. And he said, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me. And lead me into the way of everlasting. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand that living, authentic, genuine faith it involves not just knowing about you, but a life of obedience to you. Help us to understand that it's not faith versus works, it's faith and works, and works are the evidence of our faith. In this room, there's probably confusion, frustration, maybe anger or irritation. Father, I pray that your spirit would move among us and help us to know what we need to do today to be in right relationship with you. What changes we need to make in our own lives so that we could fully glorify you and who we are and what we do. What changes we need to make in our marriages in our families, in our interpersonal relationships so that you can be glorified in and through our life committed to full obedience. So God, we thank you for today. May your will be done here among us. May we truly trust in you with all that we have and all that we are. In Christ's name I pray, amen.